you so much for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only podcast, where you're introduced to people who work in sports. Typically, our guests are primarily behind the scenes. This week, we talked to someone who is definitely more public-facing, yet so much of what we discuss is out of the public eye. This week's guest is Trisha Cullop, the head women's basketball coach at the University of Toledo. The winningest coach in Rocket history, Trisha's Toledo tenure is also highlighted by academic success for her student-athletes, significant charitable initiatives in her local community, and one of the best attendance track records in the country. Trisha became a head coach in 2000 after a successful playing career, followed by stints as an assistant coach at three different universities. It's a lot different, those 12 inches over when you move your seat. A lot more questions come your way. As president of the Women's Basketball Coaches Association, Trisha champions mentorship and personal development for coaches. During her career, she has leaned on her own contacts, both in and out of basketball, to advise her. That's where having a good network, I call it a personal board of directors. And when I have to make tough decisions, sometimes I circulate my issue and see what comes back from those key people before I make a decision instead of making a knee jerk. And that saved me from a lot of bad decisions. While we do talk a bit about wins and losses, Trisha also shared quite a bit of wisdom she has gained over the years. She taught me a great deal, not only about X and O's, but just how to make decisions, how to sleep on them and not react right away. That's a big thing that, you know, it took me a little bit to understand that. While you listen, visit credentialsonly.com for show notes that include links with much more information on many of the things we discussed during this podcast. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Coach Trisha Cullum on Credentials Only. Coach Cullum, what is in the water that makes basketball such an integral part of the DNA of girls and boys who grow up in the state of Indiana? <laughs> you know, it's just a favorite pastime. I think we grow up in the, one of the first gifts we get is a basketball. Uh, but you know, it's just, that's what we do. You know, you go out in the backyard and you play with your siblings or your, or your parents. For me, it was my dad. Um, you know, we just, from a very young age, it's a, you know, when you're running through the living room at night, that's what your parents are doing. They're watching basketball games. Uh, so you, you grow up with that being just a really big part of your youth and you can't help. You're either going to go one way or the other. You're going to hate it and go to another sport or you're going to absolutely love it. And I think for most people that grow up in the state of Indiana, we love it. And you clearly did. What were your experiences growing up, moving from the backyard and the basement and and the living room to being on the court yourself? You know, I, I think, um, for me, you know, my dad was who kind of introduced me to the game. You know, he, we spent a lot of time out. That was what we did together. You know, we would go out in the backyard and play and, and, and then, you know, kind of growing up, I mean, gosh, Back then, we didn't have organized youth teams until probably junior high, where now, I mean, gosh, you come out of the womb and you have a team the next year. Um, we, we had organized by junior high, and then I had a great high school coach. Uh, he really spurred my interest and then helped me find some exposure opportunities to get an opportunity to go to college and get a scholarship. So, you know, basketball has always been a big part of my life. And, you know, I just, I love it. I love it because you help develop people. You you get a chance to, now some of it's humbling, you know, you may think you have a great team and then you have a game that you just don't play your best, but I really do love this game. It's the highs and lows of it are, are worth it. And the life lessons that you learn along the way. And, you know, I just am so grateful that I have an opportunity to still have a job in this game and, and continue to help younger people have those same opportunities that I had. When did coaching start to appeal to you? When I was a, when I was a junior and senior in college, I remember thinking, you know, I, I was one of those people. I switched my major four times in four years. I tried to give my parents a heart attack. Um, and, and the funny thing is, I remember every time Coach Dunn had a meeting with me and I had to explain why, um, why I wanted to change. And so as I got closer to my senior year in college and getting ready to finish, I just kept thinking, I want to be in round basketball. I don't care what that job is. It's got to be around basketball. And so at the time, I just started you know, I'd worked every camp possible. I think my senior year, I were at 13 camps um, in college and I helped coach a high school team. I would get up at six o'clock or five in the morning. I would drive to a 6 a.m. practice before college. 
I would go to my classes, then I would go to my practice, and then I'd do it all over again every day of the week. And I loved it. And that's when I think I knew it just kind of hit me. I was the team that I was helping coach ended up being the state runner up that year, McCutcheon High School. They were amazing. And then, you know, I was so fortunate because those entry level jobs, as you know, in any profession are hard to get. And fortunately for me, Radford University had a spot open and I had a chance to kind of get my feet wet and start out very poor. Uh, but I, I enjoyed it. And it really, for me, it's never been about money. It's been about being around something that I love. You mentioned her name, Coach Lynn Dunn. Who is she? You know, I love, I, I'm, you know, you think back to your life and who has influenced you and, and who has kind of helped mold who you are. And, and for basketball, you know, my high school coach and, and Coach Dunn are two of the most influential figures in my life because, you know, she is a competitor. She is a uh, forward thinker in a lot of different things. I mean, if you follow her on the internet, she's very into politics. Um, She grew up a staunch Democrat. Uh, I think she is related to Al Gore. Um, But she is someone that's always an avid, an advocate for for women's anything. Um, Trying to promote, you know, more women coaches, uh, equal pay, any of those kind of things. But what I appreciated about her was just that, you know, she encouraged us to give our best. She pushed us outside of our comfort zone. And I love the fact that she was always trying to be her best. Uh, Even now, she's still teaching at coaches clinics. She still watches a lot of coaches clinics. She's a special assistant at Kentucky. Um, I don't even know if, I don't think now she has to reside there, but she still helps them. And, you know, you look at someone that she's won a world championship in the WNBA. She's won... Uh, she's taken her team to the final four at Purdue. Uh, she said she's coached in the ABL in addition to the WNBA. I mean, list goes on to hall of famer. Uh, but what I appreciate is she's somebody that's willing to help others and has continued to help coaches in our game grow. And I really appreciate everything she's done for me. She was your coach at Purdue. You've mentioned a couple of times, your high school coach. I'd be remiss not to get the name of that coach. who also had a big influence on you. Yeah, Rick Marshall. Uh, he was my high school coach my sophomore year through my senior year. Ironically, they almost did away with our girls program my freshman year because no one would take the coaching spot. Uh, so you think about how my life could have been a little different. But he was amazing. Uh, I remember he would even guard me in practice because he, he sometimes thought I needed to have a more physical person guarding me. And I hated it, but he made me so much better. Uh, but, you know, there's a high school coach that drove me to my a lot of my unofficial visits because my parents were working. Uh, he drove me to exposure camps and was somebody that went, went above and beyond. But one of the best teachers of the game I've ever been around, one of the best shooting coaches as well. Uh, and he's a dear friend of mine. Radford, Long Beach State, Xavier, you had about seven seasons as an assistant coach. Was head coaching always that next step aspiration or did that grow as you went through these experiences as an assistant? I think it grew, you know, I, when I first started out, I really just kind of, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn and I wanted to be around different people with different ideas and going to Radford was great. You know, Luby Lekonzak, he won long before I got there and he won long after I left there, but I was fortunate enough to learn from him and he gave me my first opportunity and, you know, I laugh. I, one of the funniest stories, I remember when I got the job, he, he said, hey, Tricia, the floors need to be swept. And I go, well, who does that? And he goes, well, you. And, and then he said, you know, the laundry needs to be done. And I'm like, well, who does that? You know, and after a while, I, I learned I wasn't supposed to ask that. I was just supposed to do it. But I'm glad I got to do a lot of those duties that other people do in my program now because I really appreciate them uh, and, and the jobs that they do and how, how much of an impact they make in our program, no matter how small. Uh, but Luby was fantastic. You know, Long Beach State was an opportunity to, to go out there and learn and grow in an in a environment that was much different from where I grew up. I had to really convince people that I was from there uh, when I was because I didn't tan well. Um, but uh, that was my first opportunity to be a recruiting coordinator. And that was that was uh, really put you out of your comfort zone. But because I didn't know a lot of people out there at the time, but Dallas Boychuk gave me an incredible opportunity and I, I loved it. I loved learning about different parts of the country and giving a chance to be in a different kind of position. Um, and then to go to Xavier, I mean, Melanie Balkan was incredible. Talk about an amazing basketball mind. 
Uh, I remember my first year, I was really quiet because I was just trying to soak it all in. She ran more plays than anybody I'd ever been around. And by this, by my second year there, I finally felt like I could speak up a little bit more because I had an idea what she was doing. But I learned a lot from her and probably a lot of the things that I, how I handle situations, I tailor after her. She taught me a great deal, not only about X and O's, but just how to make decisions, how to sleep on them and not react right away. That's a big thing that, you know, it took me a little bit to understand that when you're young, you're fiery and you just want to, you know, do it all. But I thought Mel really taught me a lot. And then, you know, I don't think until probably my third or fourth year there, did I really think, okay, now it's time. Because I think as a young coach, I just kept thinking there's so much more for me to learn. And so by the time my third or fourth year, I started thinking about it when I worked for Melanie Balcom at Xavier. And when you do start thinking about it, what are the things that assistant coaches can be doing to kind of build their profile so that they're on a radar of a athletic director for those head coaching opportunities when they're coming up? Well, I think a lot of it is going to your head coach every year and asking for different, different responsibilities and, and trying to make yourself as marketable as you can, not, not by being on social media, telling everybody, you know, I do all these things, but to be able to put it on your resume that you handled scheduling and that you did a lot of recruiting and that you really are, are well-versed in scouting, um, being someone that your head coach, when somebody calls about you, says, I really don't want to lose this person uh, because they love working with them. And, you know, some of it that a lot of people don't talk about is just having incredible people skills. You know, being someone that the players trust and rely on, being somebody the head coach trusts and knows that when I say, hey, I need you to do this, that it gets done right away. I think those things are important. I think what I learned as a young head coach was having a good network of people that could help me. I could bounce things off of and they would tell me if I was being crazy about an idea or if I needed to push through my idea because it was a good one and I needed to have the bravery and the courage to go up to my head coach and say, hey, let's do this. And, and in that position, it was to my AD. But having a network of people is very, very important. But I also think going to coaches clinics, um, I know that the WBCA just offered a bunch online. Uh, we offered our convention online. I know that, you know, Felicia Hall offers some different things online as well, but also going up and just meeting with administrators. You know, I don't think I took advantage enough of that when I was an assistant coach of going up to Mike Mabinski and saying, would you just talk to me for a little bit about it? Um, I kind of learned a lot of those things by fire, but if I had to rewind time, I would have loved to have sat down with the administrators more and asked them more about it when I would be a head coach, what are some things I need to be thinking about? And, and is there a different frame of mind? Because I really think there is. It's a, it's a lot different, those 12 inches over when you move your seat. A uh, lot more questions come your way. You really go from X's and O's, and you within each coaching staff, you have your area of responsibility. But once you move those 12 inches into that proverbial hot seat, you go from a basketball coach to almost more of a chief executive officer of the program. How much do you say, would you say there is the balance of CEO versus just a ball coach? You know, I, I think there's that misperception of when you're a basketball coach that I think people think you just go in your office and you're drawing up X and O's and watching film all day long. And what they don't realize is that you're people managing a lot. You know, you're, you're divvying up responsibilities and you're making sure that all those get done. You're recruiting a lot which, you know, some of that's X and O's, you're, you're filling positions and strengths and, and covering some weaknesses that maybe you need. You're worrying about scheduling, you know, uh, how should we schedule this year? Tough, weaker, you know, do we need to increase our RPI, uh, make ourselves competitive for postseason play? And then you haven't even talked about marketing, you know, going out and doing speaking engagements. Here at Toledo, we have a booster club that we do different meetings with, picnics with, that's, you know, it's probably between two and 300 people that are in this club. And so, you know, that's something that I think is awesome because it's helped us average close to 3,700 fans a game, which is top 30 in the country in attendance, like eight out of the last nine years. I, that I love doing just because the payoff of it, you know, we have an incredible home court advantage that, you know, you have to work at that. And, you know, I don't, I really appreciate it. I learned a lot from coach Dunn and, and how she dealt with situations with our fans. I think people so enjoyed being around her. Um, and she helped spark a lot of interest. And that's something that I think is part of it too. But, 
Yeah, I'd say the basketball part of it, I wish it was a higher percentage. I'd say 20 to 30% is actually the X and O's and the rest of it is everything else. Does it take time to grow into that piece of it to, to be that CEO as opposed to the X's and O's? Yes. I, you know, I think that's where having a good network, I call it a personal board of directors. I had I, Oprah said that one time and I, I kind of stole the con, the concept, but you really do. You know, I have close friends who are administrators. I have close friends that are compliance officers. I have some that are just in the business world that I really just value their opinion. And when I have to make tough decisions, sometimes I circulate my issue and see what comes back from those key people before I make a decision instead of making a knee jerk. And that saved me from a lot of bad decisions. Um, but, and sometimes gathered new information that made me think a completely different way. But I, I do think that that's a growth thing. I think the, the one benefit, I didn't enjoy it, but it helped me grow was that we had four athletic directors and two presidents when I was at Evansville. So I had to keep re, re, you know, inventing what I had to do because each one of them wanted something different from us. And so, you know, what one valued, another one maybe valued something very different. And we had to just keep changing, get thrown out of our comfort zone. I've been very fortunate here. You know, I've had one athletic director the entire time I've been here. Um, we've had two presidents. We're getting ready to go on our third. Unfortunately, we ours just took another job and she's great. Uh, she'll do phenomenal. But, you know, that's rare in the athletic world that you have the same people working with you for that long. I think stability is awesome. But I also look back at those opportunities when there was change and it did help me grow uh, because I had to be around a lot of different types of personalities. And, and I do think all those kind of situations, they can only make you better. There is a change coming to college athletics with the passing of the name, image and likeness legislation. How do you envision that probably impacting what you are doing? You know, it's such a different world. Um, we, there's a good and a bad side to name and image and likeness. You know, I think the scary thing for all of us that are going through it for the first time is that, you know, how do we, how do we mold this into what we're already doing and mesh it into a workable concept? Because you've got players that are going to be looking for opportunities. Uh, they're going to be very, they should be very concerned about branding and what their image is so that, you know, consumers in our markets are, want to sponsor them. But how does that really work, you know? And, and what are the taxes on that? No one's addressed that yet. Um, I think when we look at it, uh, you know, I, I, I'm worried. I think the, the, the bad side, the downside is I worry on a coaching standpoint, how does a team work in that? How does your chemistry get affected by one player having a big contract and another player having nothing? Yet on my team, both those players are very valuable to the success and the outcome of the game and your season. Uh, I, I worry about those things. I think from, from that standpoint, I'm very cautious uh, to embrace this whole concept of name, image, and likeness because, you know, we do have extra food that we're providing the players. We have um, cost of attendance money that we've never provided them before. And, and then now we're throwing in this. And I think it's just a scary concept. I think on the, on the side edging toward why is it necessary you know, some players need Pell. Let's face it. They may be a full Pell recipient and that dollar frame is still not enough to meet the basic needs of what they need to be successful and to do even what the average student on our campus is doing. So I can make an argument on that side too, that it could be a very good thing for a kid that comes from a, a tough background uh, financially that maybe if they have an opportunity to make a few dollars on the side, you know, if we're selling their Jersey that has their name on the back, which on most campuses, you know, is a pretty scarce product. But let's say we are, why shouldn't they get a percentage of that? Um, I can understand where maybe something like that would work, but I do worry about, you know, maybe they have a contract with um, a car dealer and that car dealer has a photo shoot right during my practice time. What's the choice there? Do they go to practice or do they go to the photo shoot? And I think you could probably navigate some of those things, but that is a landscape that none of us have ever been in. And that is something that we're going to have to learn on the fly and I don't think, even though there's more answers to be figured out before this legislation is completely passed, I think we're going to have a lot of questions as we navigate through this and a lot of speed bumps before we get it right. And it certainly could get interesting, you as a Nike school, if your player is going to be represented by another 
apparel or shoe company, that's its own set of conflicts you need to navigate. Yeah. I mean, you look at the Michael Jordan thing with you, with, you know, watching the last dance, you know, he made a very conscious effort to navigate the Reebok pullover. He put a, he put the American flag over it as he walked out as his solution to not representing Reebok because he was such a Nike person. Uh, you know, what do we do when we're a Nike school at the university of Toledo? And one of my kids maybe has the potential to get an Adidas contract. How does that work? Uh, I, I just think it's a, it's a slippery slope. All of us, you know, my coaching colleagues around the country that I talked to about this concept, we're all very cautious as we proceed. On the administrative side, you do have your team, but then you have, you're part of the broader athletic department team and you work closely with a lot of different departments. What is it like to, in your role as head coach, be collaborative with the marketing, the sports information, the athletic training departments? How much of your time is spent almost outside your own team for the benefit of your team? Well, first answer is a lot. Uh, but second answer is, you know, when I think what a lot of young coaches don't realize is that let's say you're looking for another job opportunity. Okay. One of the first questions when people get serious is they're going to call my trainer. They're going to call my academic person. They're going to call my people that you would, you know, they may call our baseball coach. Uh, you know, and I think, if you don't have good relationships with those people, eventually that's going to hurt you. Now, I don't, I don't have those relationships for those reasons, but I, I just, the, the feedback of that, I don't think people always take that into consideration. I'm so blessed here because every single person that touches my program does a great job and they're very qualified and we're really, really lucky to have them. Uh, my trainer is the best I've ever had. Uh, he just won a national award. And, uh, you know, I teased him. We didn't have to see the award to know that he's that good. Um, our, in our athletic department, we've won, I think, eight out of the last nine years. I, actually, I'm sorry. What is it? Six out of the last eight years, we've won the top GPA in the MAC for our athletic department. So our academic people are getting it done. And the coaches are doing a great job of encouraging that. But I have really good friends in our athletic department. I think when you have those strong bonds with other coaches in your department and you guys are supportive of each other, it only makes your job easier and it makes sharing a facility easier. The fact that our men's basketball coach and I are really good friends uh, just makes both of our lives easier because there's times when, let's face it, everybody will text you when you want. But boy, when you've lost, you know who your friends are. Uh, you know, I can lose a game and feel awful and he'll be the one that'll come down to my office and sit down and say, are you okay? And I, I hope that I'm able to do those same things for him because it's not easy to be in that seat. And it is like dealing with crickets when you lose a game that you thought you should have had. And you really need great friends to get through this profession. You mentioned the attendance and the home field advantage. It gives you home court advantage. It, one of the other things you've done that probably involves a lot of people on the staff there is the charity and the community involvement. And I think that that's great what you've done, including over $150,000 for the Komen Foundation. What drives you to put that community aspect so front and center in what you're doing? Well, the, the Komen Foundation was something that we kind of, developed early on a relationship here and breast cancer has been something that my aunt had it. Uh, she's a survivor. My mother had it. Uh, that's not what ended up taking her life, but she battled it. Uh, so, and I, I, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody on my team or on my staff that doesn't have a connection to it. Uh, so that's something that's an easy, easy ask. You know, if someone asked me to do something for that organization or even for any, you know, any breast cancer, uh, like the KEL fund, part of our, we buy our shirts for our game from them. So there's a few different organizations. We help our out our Mont cardiology center at our own UTMC hospital with that as well. Uh, but the other, the other organization in town that's very dear and near to me is the um, connecting kids to meals. There's an organization in Toledo that feeds over 7,000 hungry kids a day. And our, our, our team has gone in and done a lot of packaging their meals for them uh, and try to help them lower their costs because what they're doing is so impactful. And right now, you know, I think the University of Toledo's athletic department is partnering with them again because this is a hard time for them. A lot of the ways that they're distributing the foods are through schools and after school programs. Well, those aren't happening right now. 
So it doesn't mean these kids don't need to eat. And so I think that's an amazing organization and it's run by a, a former basketball player from a different institution, but she gets it. And so we've done some team building activities going down there, but, you know, I think we all benefit so much from our communities as a, as a coach and as a member of a program. And the least we can do is try to find something to do to give back. And just like all of us in all of our communities should be looking at all the restaurants and all of the boosters that have given to us all the years, they're hurting now. You know, I've tried to, granted, I'm also, it, it's conflicting with me trying to stay in shape uh, but, <laughs> because there's some amazing restaurants in Toledo, but uh, I will say that I have tried to go out and get takeout from some of the places that are near and dear to my heart. You've been in coaching for a little over 25 years. How have coaching staffs grown in that time? When I first took the job here, you know, we, our staff wasn't structured the same. Um, but I, I think you see just across, I'll, I'll speak across the country more. I think you see a lot of assistant to the head coach, uh, Coach Dunn's position, special assistant to the head coach. Uh, I don't, I can't realize in my own world what those are, but uh, a lot of your BCS programs have a lot more assistance and, and help that we, than we have. Um, but I, I do think, you know, I think back to when I was a player and there, the staffs weren't built like that. You know, I was at a BCS school and it wasn't, we didn't have all the extra, extra assistance and GAs and things floating around. Uh, so I think they've grown. I think that's great because it also means there's entry level jobs for, you know, people that aspire to be collegiate coaches. And, and we always want to give them a, a, a way to get in and a way to prosper and learn so they can grow and be the next head coach. But I, I do think some of those might be going away, unfortunately, with some of the things we're dealing with fiscally across the country. But hopefully as the economy bounces back, you'll see some of those same things come back because, you know, my, I would love to see some of my current players who are aspiring to be coaches be able to have those opportunities when they graduate, the same ones that I had. It's easy when you look at a football team to kind of know what people are doing on the coaching staff because there's everybody has their role defined in their title. There's the offensive line coach, the tight end coach, the defensive secondary coach. Basketball doesn't necessarily title people that way publicly, but the roles are pretty defined. What are the roles for your coaching staff? Okay. Generally speaking, not necessarily. I change no, probably depending on the staff. That's fine. So Nitra Perry is my associate head coach. Um, she does, she wears a lot of hats just like I do. Um, and that's why she's an associate head. She has experience of being a head coach, number one. Uh, but I let her call our, call her out of bounds plays. I let her uh, coordinate our defense and she comes up with the game plan defensively for every game. Uh, she also has her hand in a lot of things, but those are her main things. And then she helps with recruiting. She takes a big part in that big part in scouting. Um, Mark Stevens on my staff is the recruiting coordinator. So he's the one that that's his main focus is, is making sure that in every class that we have enough players listed in every position that we need for those classes and that we're thinking forward three years uh, of what we need. And, you know, that's not always easy because sometimes injuries or transfers can skew that whole chart, but he's got to have the rainy day fund for me in that area of what, what do we need to do? Um, Danielle Page on my staff does all of our international recruiting. She spent 10 years overseas professionally. Uh, and so she has a lot of contacts. She and I actually just went to FIBA 16s last year in August and watched the FIBA A division and B division of their, their tournament. And that was beneficial knowing that all the FIBAs got canceled uh, this coming year. But both of them still do a lot of recruiting, a lot of scouting. Um, and all of them do a lot of helping me with marketing and promotion, helping us with our fan base. You know, they've got to step in and do speaking engagements when I can't be there. Um, and, and there's a lot of those kind of opportunities, which is good because it helps prepare them for those chances to be a head coach when they're done uh, being here. So, you know, we want them, if that's the goal of theirs, to keep having opportunities to grow and, and to prosper so that they can have confidence in those areas. Danielle helps me with offense. Mark kind of does a little bit of both, and then they all have their position-specific stuff. So Nitra does guards. Mark does – he helps with the perimeter players. Danielle does post, and I kind of 
end up at that end a lot because that was my position and I like to help her, but I kind of roam around. And then there's a broader nucleus that's part of that tight-knit family, though, that's with you every game of the season. What are some of those other roles that maybe aren't specifically on court, but still a big part of your family as a team? Yeah, so Lauren Flom on our staff, you know, she helps me uh, with some budget issues. So she and I are very busy right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She also, she, she helps, we have a guy in our equipment staff that orders all the apparel, but she makes sure everybody's got what they need. And she helps me make decisions every year as to what we need. And that's a big deal. She's also probably everyone's favorite because she's the gear person. Um, So, you know, that's, that's fun as well. She also (laughs) is kind of our academic liaison. So she kind of helps funnel all the academic information that's coming through. If there's a player who needs, um, you know, tutor or they're falling behind or they're doing well. Sometimes she's helping funnel that information. And then Brian DeBenedictus on our staff, he has the most unique position probably in all the country because not only has he's only the SID for women's basketball, um, but he also does community relations. And then in addition to that, uh, he helps me do scheduling and uh, so a few other odds and ends, but his his title and what he's doing is a little bit different. We researched it when we were trying to move him down to women's basketball from sports information, and uh, I do think he probably is a unicorn in this business. And he does all of our travel too, which is a, a big task in itself because you're when you do travel, traveling party is how many people? You know, probably around anywhere from probably twenty three, twenty five. Um, you know, and, and all, we were laughing, we all jumped on an alumni call and we were sharing funny stories. And, uh, two years ago we were on our way to Nashville and we landed only to find out that the hotel had canceled our hotel rooms. Uh, and so there's, oh. you know, that's when his job is fun. Uh, that's his, uh, real quick, got to think on your feet. And I really have been impressed with how he's handled it. He's extremely organized and that sometimes those things happen, but he does a great job. Your regular season, especially when you get into conference play, gets to be a little bit formulaic, and typically you're playing on a Tuesday night and then again on a Saturday. Would you walk us through when the buzzer sounds Tuesday night until that ball is tipped on Saturday? What is happening in those days between the games? Well, the Mac, the Mac has been playing. I don't know if they'll change it, but we have been playing like a Wednesday-Saturday format. So a lot of times – Sunday's our usual day off for the players. That's our day as a staff that we're getting caught up video wise. So I'll start you on a Sunday. Sunday is everybody's, I, as soon as a game, let's just, I'll tell you what, I'll start on the last game of the week. So Saturday we play a game. As soon as that game ends, I get handed my computer, which has already been loaded, not only that game, but film for our next opponent. I don't usually look ahead two games. I look one game. I take them one game at a time. My staff, on the other hand, is getting the next few games loaded because one of them has the next scout, one of them has a scout after that, and the other one has a scout after that. So not only are they, because we all together, my assistants grade our game film. So they're going through and they're grading offense and defense because we produce a chart to our kids and the very next practice day. So we've got to have that done. We've got to have the scouting report done to plan practice. So come Monday, after a Sunday of being off, we – We meet, we talk about what we want to do. Um, We're still recruiting. And then, you know, we'll practice Monday, Tuesday. Uh, Monday's a little harder. Tuesday's a little lighter. If we're on the road, we're leaving right after practice to probably head wherever we're going. Uh, One nice thing about the MAC, though, is our conference is so compact. Travel's pretty easy uh, for the most part. Uh, I'm not fond of traveling those. A couple of those are on the outskirts, but our job is easier because we're centrally located. So if we're traveling, we're leaving Tuesday night, we get up the next day, we have shoot around, we have pregame meal, we watch a little bit of film, we play that game, we head home after that game. Uh, Thursday, light practice, we review the grading of that film, we're watching a little bit of film, light on the court though. Uh, Friday, still light on the court because we're going to play Saturday, going through that scouting report one more time, play the game on on, uh, Saturday, and then, you know, we're done. Usually in the MAC, you know, you've got one home game, one away game in a week, sometimes two home, two away. But I love the format of having two days in between games. I've been in leagues where you had one day in between games and, you know, it's just, that's a tough turnaround. I love how we've been doing it in our league. 
you have other responsibilities then besides just the team. You've got the media. You may have the boosters. Um, you may have recruits at these games. So how much of your time is spent on those other activities? And how hard is that when you just want to be with your team to celebrate a loss or you want to go and just be in solitude because you feel terrible about how the game went? <laughs> Well, one thing that's really helped me, one of my former assistant coaches a long time ago told me not to talk to the team after games, to wait till the next day. And so I actually do that. Um, I, I watch film. So as soon as our home games end, I go straight up to our radio. Our players actually go in the stands and thank people for coming. And so they divide up and conquer. Our fans love it because they get a chance to see our kids. Their families love it because I haven't held them hostage in the locker room for a 45-minute you know, rant or raid or praise. And so they get to be with their daughter. I get to watch film. I think the beauty of that is you're not looking, you're not saying some things off the cuff because you're frustrated. You're actually seeing the film because there's been times early in my career where I praise somebody, then I watch film and I'm like, Ooh, it wasn't that good. Or there's been times that maybe I've criticized somebody and I didn't realize the chain reaction that made that decision that they made on the court occur. So it saved me a lot of poor decisions. It's taken the feelings out of it. Not that, it, not that the next day I'm still not upset, but it's not to the degree. So, you know, I really, for me, film is great therapy. So I watch film right after the game, no matter what. And that helps me be able to make all my decisions a lot better for my staff and for that. I will say though, you know, recruiting takes a big piece out of what we do. You know, there's times that I'm preparing for a team and a call comes in, I've got to take. And so then that makes it for a late night. Um, or, you know, we have dinners and things scheduled with our booster club throughout the year that, you know, there's times that we're exhausted. We just got off the road from recruiting. Maybe I got back at two in the morning and then I've got practice and I've got to go to a booster thing that night. But I think the thing that I always just tell myself is I don't have to go to it. I get to go to it. I don't have to average 3,700 fans a game at Toledo, but we get to because we have incredible fans. So sometimes, you know, you may sometimes be exhausted, but then when you walk in that room and you see how happy they are to see you, it makes it all worth it. And I've really enjoyed that group. We actually did a Zoom call with them last week and just caught up with them. And I was surprised how many of them jumped on. That's great. That's awesome. It's probably very rewarding to have that instant feedback and support from a group like that. Mm -hmm. We're so fortunate. You know, it's when you look at top 30, what that means, you know, if you, if you looked at that list, you'd have us ahead of a, a lot of BCS schools. And to do that, not just one year, but eight out of the last nine. And the one year we didn't make it, we were 31st by like six people. If only my cousins and friends would have shown up, we'd have been good. But, you know, it's, it, that's incredible. Uh, I didn't, when I took the job here, I knew the fan base was pretty good. At that time, it was about 1,500 fans a game. And I remember being really excited about that because that was a good day at my last school. And so I remember the first home game we had, there was the worst snowstorm ever. And I thought, oh my gosh, no one's going to come. And I slid through two intersections on the way here. I know you know what a great driver I am. <laughs> I slid through two intersections and there were still... I think 2000 people at the game. And so it made me appreciate their love for the game and how adept they are to driving in the snow. And I wasn't, and I've gotten better at that. That recruiting piece, you've brought it up a number of times. The actual on-court season, you start practice in October, you play hopefully into April. Mm -hmm. The recruiting season does not end. There are little pauses, but it does not end. Can you describe that never-ending recruiting process? Yeah, it, it really is. It's You're never done. Uh, I will say this. You know, we just finished up our 21 class, um, and we had to do a lot of virtual home visits for the first time ever. And, you know, we're, we're a little bit ahead of where we would have normally been. And I think because of everything, people have had time to focus on it. Um, but, you know, normally – we may still be chasing down 21s, the juniors in high school for a little bit of time. You know, the kids are getting ready to be seniors. So what's funny is normally you think, okay, well, we're done. No, no, that means we start 22s right now. So normally in, if, if nothing was going on at this moment, we'd be heading out in May for recruiting periods. We would be doing July recruiting gone for a bigger part of the month, um, watching tons of kids at, at convention centers, 
uh, walking normally five miles a day in those convention centers to watch various games because you're not just trying to watch one game. You might try to catch two games an hour. And it's always my luck that one's on one side of the building, one's on the other, uh, which is good for my steps. Uh, but, you know, you get out of that period and, and, and in June and August, you have camps. So you've got your own camps and maybe you have an elite camp in August. Um, then you have a little bit of time, but you're, you think about it, even while you're recruiting, your kids are in summer school normally. So in between those recruiting trips, you're coming home and running workouts with your team. You're meeting with them to make sure they're okay. Um, normally coaches get a little bit of time, maybe around that May, a little bit of June around your camps and a little bit of August, but the rest of the year you're doing some form of recruiting. What do you do to keep yourself physically and mentally sharp, given some of those hours that the bus might get back to campus at 2 a.m., like you said, or you're up late watching film or calling a recruit who's on the West Coast? It's, it is a grind, and it takes a lot out of you. How do you maintain physical and mental sharpness through that? I think you've got to have some kind of balance in your life. You know, you've got to you got to take time to shut it down every once in a while and do something else. Um, one of the best things I did this year was I purchased a, a Peloton treadmill. And, uh, you know, so I finally have someone new to yell at me to work out when I turn that on. Uh, this Peloton lady is pretty brutal. Uh, but, you know, it's that's good. You know, when you're an athlete, you're used to having a coach. So there's plenty of coaches of different workouts on there. And that's been good, um, especially during this time period. But also, you know, I love to I'm an avid movie watcher. Um, you know, I, I love watching, uh, just this morning I was watching the new Michelle Obama, uh, becoming, uh, piece. And that's so good. I was watching it this morning. I haven't finished it yet, but I love to read and I love to catch up with, with just some of my friends and shut it down for a little bit and not talk about basketball. I think sometimes you've got to, you know, catch up with your family going through the last three years. I lost both my parents, unfortunately. And I think for me, it made me give pause and realize just how important your family is and that you have to give a certain portion of your life to that, or you're just not, you're going to get through it all and no one else is going to be standing there with you. You've got to have a support system and, and be willing to have some other avenues in your life or this job could wear you out. And when you're starting out as a young assistant and you have that fire and, and you want to show your best, there's probably a, a natural inclination to just go, 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 go. How do you monitor that well-being amongst your staff to make sure that they're not burning themselves out? I think when I was younger, and even, even I'll give you an instance, when you, when you and I uh, knew each other and you helped me uh, drive my, my car over to uh, the University of Evansville when I took my first trade coaching job, I was crazy in that time period. I was working till. 11, 12 at night. It's my first head coaching job. I was trying to make an impression. What I didn't realize is I was burning out my, my fires. You know, I was so exhausted every day when I came to work and I thought, you know, I'm doing all the right things. I'm, I'm getting to work early. I'm, I'm the last one to leave. I'm on the phone like crazy. And I had a good friend of mine say to me, you know, Trisha, when you talk to people, like you can't be fun. He's like, what movies have you watched lately? You know, have you gone to a restaurant lately? You know, like, Recruits want to know you have a life too. And, and so that really stuck with me. And for my assistants, you know, there's times that they'll hear me say, you know, get out of here. Or if let's say that we've finished a point in the day where there's absolutely nothing we can do, like go be with your family, you know, please go to a movie, do something. Um, because there's times when you do reach a point where you could stay there and really wear yourself out or you could be smart and recharge your batteries. And I think you can get a pretty good feel on where your staff's at with that. Um, if you, if you're spending enough time with them and I hope I am. And, and I encourage them to be very, I, I think the other thing is because this job and you know, from being in athletics becomes full encompassing of your life. It's not a nine to five job that you also have to, if you've got a doctor's appointment in the middle of the day, you got to go, you know, if your hairdresser can only fit you in, at this time in the middle of the day, you got to go because Lord forbid you look like a shaggy dog on the next TV game. So, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, one thing I've even started incorporating and you'll laugh, but at least once a month trying to go get a massage, I, I, it's helped me. Uh, it's been a lot better mood and, and makes me feel better. And so I, I don't think these buses that I've been riding on all my life 
quite fit the contour of my 6'2 frame. So <laughs> that has helped me immensely. You've referenced a few times the coaching community, you, the networking, the different coaches clinics, having calls with coaches regularly. Ultimately, the number one metric for most coaches is probably going to be wins and losses. So you need to be more successful in all those people. Yet you guys lean into that community a lot and support each other as coaches. There's certainly some rivals, but in general, what is that community like amongst coaches? You know, there's a competitiveness. I, I will say that there is a competitiveness. And I think, but I do think if you look at even this time period, we ask, you know, I'm the president of WBCA and, and our WBCA staff put together an online convention since our convention was canceled. We asked the top 16 coaches of every division if they would participate in an online clinic and, and almost everyone said yes. And they donated their time to try to help others. I think that says a lot about our coaching committee community. They're givers. You know, they want to help this, this game get better. Now, if I ask one of my opponents in my league to give me a couple of their plays, I don't think that's happening. Um, you know, there's a competitiveness there, but I do think when it comes to things that are maybe off of X and O's best practices of different parts of our job, we're all willing to share our, our, in our league. One thing I love is we all get along well enough that we'll jump on a zoom call together unforced away from administrators just to talk about things that we can do to make our league better. That's unique. And I love that because there's some pretty amazing minds in our league that I think when we put all, our, all of our heads together, we can come up with some pretty good solutions as far as how we're scheduling, how we're, um, how we're doing some things budgetarily to keep making the league better. But I do think that the majority of coaches in women's basketball want to help. They want to help the next generation. They want to help their peers and that's one thing that I, I've really admired. I used to think when I was young, man, if I just worked really hard, I can do whatever. And, and as the older you get, I think you realize you really do need help from other people. They can save you from mistakes that they've made. They can open doors for you that you never could have opened. Maybe they do something way better than I've ever done it. And just by listening to a couple things they do, I can pick up one or two nuggets that will totally change what we do at Toledo. And that's one thing that I really love is sharing with other coaches and listening to different ideas. I may not do all of them, but I may steal a couple things that are earth shattering for what we do. And, and that's one thing I love. One of the stark realities of your business is that most, if not all seasons will end in a loss. That was not the case for you in 2011. What happened in 2011 and what do you remember about that season? Well, it was an, it was a special, special team. Uh, I'm actually getting together with them tomorrow online just to communicate, but you know, it's, it's almost a decade ago now. Um, and we, it was such a unique team because when I first took the job at Toledo, we didn't have a point guard. And so I had to really quickly in April, I liken it to looking for bread and milk whenever there's a snowstorm coming. Uh, you know, there's no, no one's left after the late signing period. Think about it. So I took the job, there's no point guard. And so I came up, I found a couple of options and one was a girl from Australia and one was a girl from Israel. And everybody told me like, there's several schools that had offered this kid, I think Boston college, Seton hall, but a lot of them backed off when they heard of her religious belief. She was an Orthodox Jewish kid. And she could not ride a motorized vehicle from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. She could only eat kosher food, which at the time I only knew about kosher hot dogs and pickles. So I had a lot to learn. Uh, and she, we had to really kind of cater the whole season around her every year about finding her a hotel, you know, where we could get to the night before the game and she could walk on a Saturday to the game because she couldn't be in a motorized vehicle. She couldn't use electricity during the Sabbath either. So when I look at that 2011 team, that was her third year of being a part of our program. And I think about having a point guard that a lot of people wouldn't take a chance on because she was different. And I think about a kid that in the championship game scored 40 versus USC in the championship game against the Pac-10. Back then it was the Pac-10 defensive player of the year in the league. And I look at three kids on that team went pro, you know, Nama Shafir, Melissa Goodall, and Andela Dorch. Uh, we, we just had a team that sold out for each other. They really didn't, Nama Shafir wouldn't have cared if she scored two points and had 15 assists instead of having 40 points and however many assists she had. But this group, they cared about each other. 
They worked hard for each other. They were selfless. They were determined. You know, we had to play Delaware, which had Elena Deladon, who's a future in the future will become the WNBA MVP in the first round. And I remember watching her in warmups from my office up above and I shut the blinds because she was hitting shots from everywhere and I was intimidated. So I just shut the blinds. Um, we played Auburn, Alabama, Syracuse, UNC Charlotte, and then the final game against USC. We could not have scheduled that, those games at home, but the NIT provided us that opportunity. And every game, I just remember being so proud of those players and how they came together and beat teams that a lot of people would have said we couldn't. But also, I was so proud of our Toledo community because we sold out two games in that run. And the last game sold out in six hours. Uh, it was incredible. The phone lines went down because people were calling in. And the university sent an email out saying, sorry, the phone lines are down because of the volume of calls coming in for the NIT. And I was the only one that emailed back. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and so they had to, the two guys that were trying to repair it wouldn't get out of line. They were in line to buy tickets and they wouldn't get out until they were given tickets to fix the phone line. So <laughs> that was awesome as well. But I just, I, it was an incredible experience. And I just remember when it was over with thinking that's it. Like, you know, you're so conditioned to get to the end of a season and experience a loss that experiencing a win was kind of surreal. And I, I was so proud of those players. They're still very tight knit today. Um, but they were so probably the biggest compliment I can give them. They're all givers and they were a pleasure to coach. And you know, you just, you, you aspire to get that kind of player in your program every year. They really set the bar for me as far as what I look for and what I will continue to aspire to coach in the future. There's a opening day feeling in October when the first practice happens and then you start to get into the routine of the season and you build momentum and you get into March. And then when you do have that last game and that last loss, and there's such a finality to it and you don't know when it's going to be, cause you're always hoping there's one more game after that. Mm -hmm. That has to be one of the hardest nights uh, of the season. How do you manage that emotionally, not only for yourself, but for staff and, and for players? Cause it, it is one of the hardest things I've been around in sports is that final game. It is hard. That's a great comp. You know, this year was hard for us because we won our last game in the conference tournament. You know, we had beaten the number one team in the seed and, and we had, you just know when your team's in a mojo point, you know, we, things were clicking, the kids were all bought in, they were all fired up. If you would ask any person on my roster, they said, they would have told you we were going to win the tournament. That's how excited they were. So that was hard because we're at practice getting ready to play, prepare for the next game. And I get a call from one of my administrators saying, Trisha, you're going to have to tell them the season's over. And so I had to walk to the middle of the court, pull them all together. Your immediate emotions and thoughts go to your seniors because it's their last go around. And boy, that was hard. The tears were flowing uh, from all of us because we had a great group of seniors this year. But for any year, you know, regardless of this year or any other year, you know, my, my immediate thought process is to those kids. And then right after that is, okay, what do we need to do to prepare for the next year? What, what do we need to do? What was a shortcoming that maybe is why we lost now so that we can be better in the future? And that's where my mind goes next. And, and immediately into have we finished up recruiting so that we can put ourselves in the best position possible and those type of things. But immediately, you're right. For probably a 24-hour period, I just have to, you know, be about that, uh, of thinking about all the kids in our team and how are they doing, how's my staff doing. Because as you well know, we put your heart and soul into something. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough when it comes to an end. I'm going to ask you a few things here, looking for your gut reaction uh, of a game or a couple games that stand out in each of these different ways. Um, and the first one, a little bit offbeat. What's a game you wish you had the opportunity to coach in? I'd love to coach in a national championship game. You got time. You can still get there. <laughs> That's the beauty of that one. Is there a game that still is in your head that has stuck with you a tough one that you just you know still once in a while you're like uh wish I had that one back there's plenty of those probably one that sticks out in my head was my first year here we were picked last in the league and we made it to the finals of the conference tournament we had a group of kids that had won 14 games the year before we won 18 games that year but boy they just 
they fought and tooth and nail to get the championship game and we lost uh, to BG. And, and that game was a tough loss for them because, and for all of us, because we had the, cha- we had an opportunity to win a championship that first year. So, you know, that one sticks out to me, but really you could go to any single digit loss and I will feel the same way uh, because those are such stingers. And we had a few of those this year. It's just, they eat you alive, but I also think they make you better. What's the favorite game that you've seen another team play? Hmm. Whether it's you're happy for their success or you just thought it was such a great performance. You know, two years ago, I'll just say the women's final four in Columbus, Ohio, those were some of the best games, you know, they were last, there was always a last second shot, you know, two back-to-back games, the semifinal games were probably two of the better games I've watched because they both ended in a last second shot. And, and I remember it was almost midnight and I remember standing in my seat and looking up in the rafters and not one person had left. And I thought, wow, this has been the best final four ever. The best player you've coached against. Maybe Elena Deladon. She played every position. And so it was really hard to figure out who was going to guard her. And played them all well, too. Yeah. <laughs> and, she's, <laughs> and she's not a short girl. So, you know, she, she made us really have to work to guard her best coach you've coached against Mm, that's a hard one I've coached against (laughs) a lot of great coaches um I haven't thought about that one Pete that's a great question (laughs) that's gonna it's giving me some pause um you know we've played a lot of Big Ten schools in my time we've played a lot of BCS schools in my time I you know I would say this I would say Muffet McGraw Okay. Were you surprised when she retired? Yes and no. Uh, you know, I think she's won national championships. She's in the Hall of Fame. She's in the Naismith. You know, I, I think the first thing you'd say is what more can she do? Um, she's also given back to our game quite a bit. You know, she's been our president. She's a former president of the WBCA. She's on committees. I'm, I'm still on committee calls with her. Uh, you know, I, she doesn't have to be on those calls anymore, yet she volunteers to. So that tells you how giving she is to making our game better. But I also, I also miss the fact that she's going to be in our game um, because, you know, she's one of the iconic coaches. Uh, When you think about women's basketball and you name those top 10 coaches that are active right now, I mean, even top five, you'd probably still say Muffet McGraw is one of them. Favorite game you played in? played in college or high school or you're you're taking it back man in 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 high school a lot of people probably remember uh damon bailey okay so bedford north lawrence when i was in high school we played their their girls team in the regionals and to get to semifinals or to the semi-state and beating them we were down seven with 49 seconds to go and one and that was an incredible fun game because I think everybody in my small town of Bicknell was at the game. Um, so in high school, that one's easy. Um, you know, in college, there's a lot of them. I mean, we had, we had great rivals, rivalries with, you know, Indiana with, uh, Iowa, you know, I'd say the Iowa games between Iowa and Purdue back in those days were knockdown dragouts. Uh, those were some of the most fun games to play in. Favorite game you've coached in? I think I think two. I think the NIT championship game, and then also the the MAC championship game uh, that year. Just because it had been over a decade since we had won and and gone to the NCAA tournament, and so I was so proud of that team that, gosh, I had tears in my eyes. Um, and also that that 2011 team. That's the only team in MAC history that's won a postseason tournament in men's or women's basketball, and so you know that that was incredible. And you know those two teams are very special to me. There's a lot of others that are still special to me too, but those two probably. I end every episode with the set pieces and questions that uh, 
just to know kind of what, what you're consuming and maybe I should call it the out of bounds plays for you instead of set pieces, um, translated into basketball for you. Yeah. The first one, podcasts or newsletters, what are the sources of information that you like to get or entertainment? I, I prefer podcasts over newsletters because I like podcasts because there are times that I'll put them on as I'm driving down the road recruiting. I'm, I'm starting to get to the point where I enjoy that stuff more than the radio. Um, you know, it, Gino has a podcast and, and I've actually enjoyed putting that on. He has different people as guests, you know, that he interviews. And that's interesting to me. I, I try to find things like that. The WBCA has a lot of different podcasts where they have invited different coaches on different topics. And so for me, I like, I just like learning and I like listening to different ways of doing things. Who are your most valuable followers? The social media accounts that you want to see if they post, you want to make sure you've seen it. Hmm. I, I think the WBCA, the NCAA, because there's, there's valuable information coming from, from both of them. Uh, on legislative issues, on awards that are coming out with different coaches. And obviously, you know, you've got friends that are, are winning some of those awards and you want to congratulate them. Um, and even just there's informational things that can help you be better from the WBCA. Um, in addition to that, you know, there's people I follow locally that I like to know local information. Um, and some people I like to follow just to laugh. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to um, to have that in your repertoire too, because let's face it, there's a lot of stuff that's not really exciting going on right now, as far as making you have a positive outlook during a pandemic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, I think following some people that, that just make you laugh and, and enjoy life are people that I enjoy following as well. Are there one or two that are consistently getting you to laugh? I think some of our late night people, I think, Ellen makes me laugh hard uh, at some of the things, the pranks she plays on people. Um, but there's, I like a lot of the late night guys. Um, you know, any of those shows, I think there's great content coming out of all of them. What are a couple of books that you would recommend to others? Um, you know, anything by John Gordon. I'm a big, I love his stuff. Um, you know, I've got some that I'm waiting to, uh, uh, there's a couple that I, there's a guy that out of California, Joshua Medcalf, who wrote uh, Chop Wood, Carry Water. That's a great book. Um, I, I'm getting ready to, to read this one, Raise Your Game by Alan Stein Jr. And I've got another one that is called Every Moment Matters. Those are two that are, these are next reads for me. But, you know, I love, I love reading anything about leadership and motivation. Those, those are my two favorite topics. What are you streaming in terms of TV or movies, music? You mentioned the Michelle Obama becoming. What else? Yeah. I watched Ozarks and jumped at the end scene. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I won't run it for you if you haven't. Um, you know, I like dramas. I'm not a thriller. I'm not a scary movie person, um, but I love drama. I was watching uh, Outlander. I am a, I'm an Outlander person. I tell you something that uh, Songland. Have you ever seen Songland? Have not. It's on TV, uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like, it's a, it's a different way of doing music instead of the voice. I watched that one the other night with the people that wear the masks. That is the craziest oh, thing. Yeah. I can't get into that because the costumes throw me. Um, <laughs> they're a little over the top. I thought, I thought when people were talking about it, it was just simply a mask, but it's a whole bodysuit. I can't do that. Songland is really cool because it is, it is for artists up and coming songwriters that have to go and, and perform a song that they've written in front, in front of three of the best songwriters in the nation. And in addition to that, there's an artist, a famous artist, like uh, Martina McBride was on the last episode. She's sitting there hoping that one of these four songs that's being presented in front of her is going to be the song on her next album. And so they perform their song, then the three, the three songwriters, they cut it to three of them. They get assigned to a songwriter. They revamp the song. And then 
they perform the final version of it and the songwriter picks one that's on their next album. It's really a cool show. And then right after the show, you can download that song from iTunes. And oh, so wow. I love that. That, that show is really cool to me just because the way that a songwriter's brain works is way beyond my scope. Uh, I get very entertained because right after they hear it, they'll say it should go like this. And I'm like, how did they do that? But I love music. And so that's one of my favorite shows. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Mm, sports memory as a kid. You know, I think, I think watching games with my dad and, uh, you know, ironically I went to Purdue, but I grew up following Indiana men's basketball. And I remember watching those games with him, watching the Pacers with him, watching the Colts with him, you know, we, and watching the Cardinals, you know, and my dad loves sports. And I, I think fed my love of, of sports in general. The last question, and it's a little bit different probably for you, because I ask if you collect your credentials, but oftentimes as a coach, you don't necessarily get them. Sometimes in the tournaments, you're getting that lapel pin. Do you collect those as mementos? I don't. Um, you know, I, I, those things don't matter to me as much as I love going back and looking at pictures, you know, of great wins. I, I love bench pictures of our team going crazy. I mean, if anything, I love photos from some of those events more than I like the medallions or whatever. I, I just, you know, I, I love looking back at the emotion and, and the teamwork and all of the, extra part of the game that you maybe you don't get to see when you're coaching. Do you have some albums that, that, that you've put together of those from over the years? I do have some, and I've also got, you know, a lot of uh, memory cards full of some things, but, you know, I, I have some that I keep in certain files that, you know, if you're having a really bad day, it's fun to go back and look at. Well, Coach, I really appreciate the time. This was insightful. Great to learn about how you go about your job and thrilled for all the success you're having at Toledo and hope you guys can continue that success there, both in the stands and on the court. Thank you. It's pretty easy to see how Coach Cullip is so successful in all facets of her role from the wins and losses to recruiting and keeping the stands packed at Savage Hall. I can only imagine not only her getting a team fired up before a game, but also her immense pride as she keeps up with her former players once they leave the program. As always, show notes are available on credentialsonly.com with much more information on many of the topics we discussed today. I also want to again thank Coach Cullip for this great conversation and thank you for listening. Credentials Only is a Holter Media production and is edited by Mike Muche. Let me know what you thought by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please give us a follow on your favorite social media channels and head to credentialsonly.com to drop us your email address so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share.